Well, hey, if you got scripture, let's dive right in. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have one, borrow a Bible from the pew ahead of you. Uh, and while you're turning there, to catch you up if you missed last week, we're starting a new series called Parables. And we're looking at parables being the, some of the stories that Jesus uses to communicate his truth. Whether it's truth about who God is, who we are, how we relate, what his kingdom is like. Jesus uses parables often to communicate those truths. Parables are just stories or examples that bring out those truths in a way that's memorable, that's creative, and sticks with us. And we talked a little bit last week about the power of story, how it has the ability to kind of stick with us more so than most other means of communication. And so this morning we're in Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to be bottom line up front looking at the idea of what it means for you and I as, as followers of Jesus to be what we will call being grace-filled people. That we would be those who have so radically and overwhelmingly experienced the grace of God in Jesus that that's going to lead us to be transformed and to become grace-filled people who then are able to go out into the world that we live in, and we're going to be dispensers of God's grace because we have been recipients of that overwhelming grace. And so Jesus is going to bring this out in the parable. And so let's turn our attention. Let's look at Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to start in verse 21. Scripture says this, Then Peter came to Jesus, and he asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Is it up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, no kidding, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and he let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had that man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Lord Jesus, again, we just come before you in your word. We lift your name high, your, your name, Lord, that we sang about just a few minutes ago, that it's a beautiful name. 
that there's no other name like it, that it's a powerful name. There's no other power like the name of Jesus. And so, Lord, we come before you. We raise high your name. We pray that you'd be glorified. We pray that you would be honored. And we pray that in that process that we would be changed and we would be transformed. And, Lord Jesus, it's, it's for that that we pray all these things in your name. Amen. So if you look at the, the passage that we have, we're kind of picking up right in the middle of one section. So we're, we're reading the back half, but this passage connects with the verses immediately preceding it in verses 15 through 20. Now in verses 15 through 20, Jesus is teaching his disciples about in his kingdom, in what we will call his church, that there's going to be a way that his people forgive each other. There's going to be a way that his people reconcile with each other. But at the end of that also, there's going to be a way that his people healthily discipline each other when reconciliation and forgiveness fails to happen. And so that's a really tough chunk of teaching, and, and no leader in the church ever wants to have to reference back to Matthew 18, 15 through 20, because it's just not fun. It, it's that section where Jesus tells us, hey, in your relationships, there's going to continue to be brokenness. You're going to wrong people, you're going to wrong brothers and sisters, and they too are going to wrong you. It's going to hurt, but here's how you handle it. And so he, he walks through the process of forgiveness and reconciliation in the church. And after that teaching, that's where we pick up in verse 21, where Peter comes to Jesus and he asks that question, the question that probably is sitting in our hearts too. Like, man, Jesus, you have laid out this teaching. It is difficult. And it raises in me, it stirs up in me a question. How many times do I have to do this? How many times do I have to forgive my brother or sister when they wrong me? And, and behind that question, there's probably a, a, an underlying assumption to it. And the assumption might be this. I know there's a limit. So what is it, Jesus? Can you, can you kind of lay out for me I hear you how it looks, but when can I stop forgiving people? When do you give me permission to stop forgiving people? Now, in rabbinical tradition, out of Judaism, there was a limit. And for many of us, we would probably like this better. In rabbinical teaching, it was three. Three times. And you could withhold forgiveness, right? And so if you're married, you know that your marriage probably would have lasted three hours, right? That's just how life goes. Apparently, none of the rabbis were married, and it didn't last. But they said three times, and then you can withhold forgiveness, right? You're like, you tried, you tried to be like God, you tried to forgive, but they clearly don't deserve it, therefore, you can withhold it. And so, Peter comes to Jesus. Now, he's going to one-up rabbinical teaching. Okay, man, Jesus, not three, but surely, surely, teacher, Seven? I mean, if three is what the rabbis are preaching, seven's got to be like the max, yeah? Peter also apparently wasn't married either. 
And Jesus is like, no, 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 not seven, but 77. Now, Jesus' point is not a literal 77, right? Because some of you are like, yeah, we, honey, we had 60, just to let you know. You got about like a month and a half left of grace, right? So it's not a figurative or it's not a literal number, but it's an expression of, no, you, not just seven, but it's 77 or some translation, seven times 70. The idea is you're not keeping track. The idea is it just keeps on going, that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we don't get to give ourselves permission to stop forgiving people when they wrong us. And and as wise disciples of Jesus, we've got to remember there's a difference between forgiveness and relationship. So keep that in mind. Forgiving someone is not just, I'm going to forget about everything you've done, and we're just going to pretend like it didn't happen. No, forgiveness is, I forgive you. I release you from the obligation of your debt to me. So when, when I wrong you, I'm indebted to you. And forgiveness is you telling me, Ryan, I, I release you of that debt. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to demand something of you. I'm going to forgive you of that debt. But it doesn't mean that the relationship necessarily is restored to what was. And so we even see that theologically, right? In the forgiveness God gives us for our sins, he pardons us for sin. He doesn't hold the debt against us, but that's not the full circle of how we have relationship with him, right? Theologically, there's a whole series of events that work out in our salvation that bring us into relationship. Forgiveness is just, hey, you sinned, you wronged me, but I release you from the debt. I'm not going to hold you against it. I'm not going to hold it against you. And here's the thing, before we dive into the scriptures, you and I oftentimes are like Peter, where when we ask the question, our heart behind it is, when do I have permission to stop forgiving people? And I guarantee you, you have people in your life who have wronged you more than seven times. Maybe they're family, maybe they're friends, maybe it's coworkers, maybe it's a boss. And they've wronged you over and over and you're sitting with this tension and you bring it to the Gospels and you say, Jesus, what do I do with this? They keep wronging me. How many times? When do I have permission? And I know that my own soul has walked through this and when I, there was relationship and then details don't matter, but there was such pain, such hurt, such wounds, such brokenness like my soul has never experienced before. And I saw myself going down that path, just like Peter's kind of assumption leads us, which is, man, Lord, I'm not asking where is that point. I'm already there, where I have given myself permission to stop forgiving this guy. And as soon as you and I allow our souls to cross that barrier, we head into dangerous places, not for them necessarily, but for us. Like, like that saying says, bitterness is like swallowing poison waiting for the other guy to die. And that's what happens when you and I refuse forgiveness. We hold on to something in the hopes that 
it's going to hurt them, it's going to affect them, it's going to change them. And all that does is act like a poison within our own souls. When I was stationed overseas, uh, I was stationed on an airfield. Airfield in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan. And uh, the airfield was pretty big. And so in order to move around the airfield, we had uh, like trucks or uh, vehicles, uh, but they weren't armored or anything like that. It was like a third world taxi cab, I guess is what it looked like. And you would get in those and you would just drive all over the airfield if you had to go to different places on it. And now we shared the airfield with uh, the, the ANA, the Afghan National Army, right? They had their areas of it and we had our areas of it. And so in order to get around the airfield, you would have to go through various checkpoints to get across, measures of security and so on and so forth. And so one of our sister units, they were using one of their vehicles or their vans, and they were driving to the other side of the airfield. And as they were going through one of the checkpoints, one of the ANA soldiers just opened fire on the vehicle, and they had no chance to respond. And he emptied his magazine, and then he surrendered himself. And as they were going through interviewing him, interrogating him, why this was, it came out that what it was is, man, he was all about what was going on for the good of his country. But what had happened is that there was some U.S. patrol that had gone through his home village. And as they went through his home village, they disrespected his family. And so that shame, that anger, that hurt, it sat with him. And it wasn't a recent event. It took months. And then finally, it boiled over, his anger boiled over into violence on people that it had nothing to do with what happened in his village miles and miles away. And so Jesus knows. Now, that's a, that's a dramatic example. But you and I can walk down that same road with our souls of when we let unforgiveness take root in our hearts. And so Jesus knows what unforgiveness does to us. He knows what it does to our souls. And so in response to Peter's question, Lord, when do I get permission? Jesus gives us this parable. And the whole point of the parable, which we're going to see it unfold, is this. There is no end to your forgiveness. And there can't be an end for your forgiveness because there was no end for God's forgiveness. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, then we have to be grace-filled as he is grace-filled. And so let's turn our attention to the scriptures. And so the parable unfolds. Jesus says that a king settles accounts. Now, he's got an employee. I don't know what this guy does besides apparently spend money. But he comes to the king. And scripture says that he owes the king 10,000 bags of gold. I have never seen a bag of gold before, let alone 10,000. Somehow, I don't know what this brother did, but he blew a lot of the king's money. And the king says, okay, it's time to settle accounts. Now, 10,000 bags of gold is roughly equivalent in our money today in, in the billions of dollars, okay? Upwards of perhaps $12 billion, right? So if you think your debt is bad, $12 billion, this guy racks up on his credit card with the king. And the king calls him in and says, let's settle accounts, meaning I would like my money now, please. And the guy falls on his feet and he promises, I got you. Give me a little bit of time and I'll pull together $12 billion, right? If your friend came to you and told you 
that they can scrap together $12 billion in a couple weeks, would you have pity on that guy? Probably not. But the king is moved by pity, and he completely wipes out the debt. And the man walks away from his presence. Now the man goes out, and Jesus says he quickly finds another of the servants who owes him money. And now this sum is 100 pieces of silver. So a a piece of silver was roughly a day's wage for a worker in that time. All right, so I don't know what you want to consider a, a worker's wage today, but let's say it boils down somewhere to about seven to $10,000 for 100, 100 days' wages. And so this guy finds the guy who owes him 10000 Keep in mind, he's just been forgiven $12 billion. Now this guy owes him 10000 And you notice the, the language is the same. The other servant comes to him and says, have patience. I beg you. I will pay this back. And the unforgiving servant chokes him and demands of him, pay me what you owe. And then he throws that guy in debtor's jail until he can work off the debt owed. Now the servants go back to the master and say, this is what's happening. This guy that you just forgave $12 billion of debt, he just choked a guy in the streets over $10,000. And so the king calls him back in and reapplies the punishment of the debt. And then Jesus, if if you want to be scared by Scripture, verse 35, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, some of us want to, want to hide under grace and say, ah, tricky, tricky, I catch 22, Jesus. I'm forgiven of all sins. Gotcha. But notice the language and the audience of who Jesus is talking to. Your brother or sister insinuating and meaning what? You're already a member of the household of faith. And still he says, if you don't do this, if you don't live grace-filled lives towards your brothers and sisters, your heavenly father is going to treat you the same way. Does that worry anybody else in the room who maybe is holding on to a little bit of unforgiveness? That should terrify us because it will terrify us when we've given ourselves permission to stop forgiving. Then that raises the question, what do I invite the Lord to do in my life? Because Jesus is a man of his words. Have we given ourselves permission? And so when we look, look at verse 28, this is the response of the man as he leaves the king's presence. And there's two things that pop out to me from this guy's response. Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe, he demanded. And the first thing that pops out of the text to me is this. How underwhelmed by God's grace are you, that when you get forgiven $12 billion of debt, you walk out onto the street and want to collect what's owed. Like, to me, that speaks that that this guy in the parable was untouched by grace. Because there's no way you can experience the totality of God's grace like Jesus is talking about and walk out and respond that way to another person. It's to be underwhelmed by God's grace. 
And, and sad to say, in the church, more often than not, it's those of us who have been with Jesus for a while now that struggle with this the most. Maybe when you first accept Christ, you, you experience his grace for the first time. It's life-changing. It's transformative. It breathes life into you in a way that before, when you were living in darkness and death and sin, you'd never experienced. And then for the very first time, remember back to that with me, you experience the grace of God in Christ in a real life-changing way. And it rocked your world in the greatest way possible. And then as time goes on, though, you and I begin to, like we talked about last week with self-deception, we begin to forget just how badly you needed grace and still need grace. And Jesus warns us about this kind of heart condition in the Gospels. In Luke 18, he gives the example of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector who go into worship. Now, the Pharisee walks in thinking that he doesn't need that much grace. And he walks in, and his worship is this. Man, Lord, I am so thankful that you haven't made me like these schmucks. Do you know what I do? Let me remind you, Lord, how great I am. Do you know that I tithe? As if Jesus is impressed by your money. Do you know that I fast? As if Jesus is impressed that you can fast. That guy had forgotten how much grace he received and how much he needed. And the tax collector comes in and beats his chest and says, Lord, have what? Mercy on me. I'm a sinner. One living in the reality, overwhelmed by grace, the other one underwhelmed because he's forgotten how much he needs. And then in Luke 7, when the sinful woman comes into the presence of Jesus, surrounded by the religious leaders at a dinner party, she comes in and just embarrasses herself, culturally speaking, embarrasses herself in the presence of Jesus by just weeping and, and, and caring for him. And all the Pharisees and all these guys who are underwhelmed by grace look at her and they think, oh man, what's she doing? And, and worse yet, if Jesus knew who this chick was, he wouldn't let her touch him. And so you and I can look at those examples, that, that self-righteous behavior that doesn't feel like it needs grace, and we can throw stones at it because we've encountered the reality and the grace of Jesus. And yet, many of us in the church are that same way. We forget. Maybe because you've learned how to walk the halls here. You've learned how to speak the language and the lingo. And you have learned how to convince yourself, perhaps, that you're actually an all right person. And you forget how desperately each of us is in need of grace. And when grace becomes something that is underwhelming, it leads us into the heart set of this guy. If I'm underwhelmed by grace, I'm not going to be a grace-filled person. And I told my small group this this past Tuesday when we were walking through and sharing questions. I was talking to them about how for me personally, if, if I were to talk about the attributes of God that it, that it, to manifest in my life, one of the hardest attributes of his for me to understand and also to live out is grace. Because I can be a very legalistic person. And at the heart of my legalism is this. I think I'm pretty darn good. And you ought to be pretty darn good too. And if you can't seem to do that, well then you've got a problem. 
because I can seem to do it. And it's a misunderstanding, and it's an under, or it's a being underwhelmed by grace, where it causes us to not be people who can dispense grace. And that's the first thing that just jumps out of us from that. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 1, this is Paul saying this, reminding you and I, when you think you want, the, when you want to wear your church ribbons on your chest to like show Jesus just how great you are and just how little grace you need, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says in verse 1, as for you, you who follow Jesus, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. Is there anything about that that just screams great credentialing? You're dead. You got nothing to stand on. You being dead. And then jump to verse 4. It says this, but when you were dead, but because of his great love for us, God who is what? Read this. Who is rich in mercy. He's rich in it. He's wealthy in it. He who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And it's such a poignant and a beautiful reminder to you and I. No matter how high on the horse you feel you've become, remember, man, before Jesus you were dead. There's no credential, there's no leg to stand on. And, and so no matter how far along we get in our discipleship, we always want to remind ourselves and look back to that, that I was dead. And then in his riches of his mercy, he had grace towards me. And because of that, no matter how far I've come, I will be a person who dispenses that grace to other people. And then we look back at verse 28. So the guy goes out. He's underwhelmed by grace. I mean, $12 billion worth of grace. Underwhelmed by it. Not even phased by it. He goes out. He grabs this guy. And Jesus is very, very specific. He chokes him. Now, people have owed me things in life. I have, I mean, just your pastor has never choked somebody to get some coin. Right? Never done it. I hope not to. But I've never done it. This guy is so underwhelmed. Can you imagine? He walks out of being forgiven $12 billion, walks out on the street and chokes a dude for the money he's owed. Underwhelmed by grace. But look at the words. And, and when I read this, the words that, just, that Jesus uses, remember, Jesus is intentional. Look what he says he, as he's choking him. Pay what you owe me. You owe me. You owe me. Can you imagine that? Being forgiven $12 billion and walking out of that and feeling like I'm owed something. And I'm going to get what I'm owed. I deserve what I'm owed. Now here's the reality of it. That debt that the guy owed him it was legitimate. Jesus isn't saying it was unfair. Bro owed him twelve thousand or $10,000. He's not denying that fact. But here's the thing. The grace he's just experienced 
changes the way he gets to view what he's owed. And the same thing is true in your life. Because of the grace that God has extended to you, it fundamentally changes the way you get to view what you're owed. And as a follower of Jesus, you have to come to terms with the fact that, I don't want to hurt your feelings, you and I don't deserve what we're owed any longer. You relinquish your claim to it. Why? Because you've been forgiven so much more. And grace-filled people don't deserve what they're owed anymore. Because they have been forgiven. And for you and I, that's sometimes a really hard truth to let settle into our souls. Because we can be the same way. I love Jesus. He's forgiven me of my sins. And yet, I still hold in my soul the feeling of, I'm being shortchanged. And I think the way this most often manifests in our discipleship is relationally, not financially. Not many people owe me money. In fact, if I'm real, I owe more people money than owe me money. <laughs> right? Some of you are in the church. Just kidding. It's not usually financial, but for many of us, it's relationally where we hold on to these payments. We look at our relationships, family relationships, friendships, and we start to say, man, I am pouring so much into that person. I sacrificed so much for this person, and they never reciprocate. They never pay me back. I want what I'm owed. And we begin to hold that in our relationships. And man, brothers and sisters, I just want to challenge us as a church that when we have experienced the grace of Jesus, you relinquish the claim to being or to deserving what you're owed. You give it up. Relationally, financially, emotionally, doesn't matter what it is. The debt may be real. You may pour more into that friendship and that relationship than they respond with. No doubt. But because of the grace of God in Christ, you've got to relinquish it. And yet so often you and I go out and we have the grace of Jesus in us and, on, and upon us and we go out and we're choking people saying, pay me what you owe me. And the irony is, as we think about that metaphor, that very visual metaphor that Jesus gives us, where we are choking someone, demanding to receive what we're owed, here's the truth, we're not we're not choking that person. All The only thing that you and I choke when we do that is we choke the ability of the gospel to grow within us. We choke it out. And you've choked it out because you have decided that what you're owed is more important than the grace of God in you and being a person who is grace-filled and a dispenser of his grace. And immediately, as soon as you do that, you cannot follow Jesus and be a person who's looking to collect. And as soon as you do that, you choke out the grace of God in your life. When I was going through uh, engineer school as a, as a lieutenant, right? First of all, anybody here ever been choked out before? Random question, spiritual means, two people. Three people, I need to know why you got choked out, first of all, so 
let's like, it's not a normal thing in life, right? Most people don't go through life and get choked out. When I was going through engineer school, right, it was, uh, as a lieutenant, you go through your classification school. For me, it was engineers. And part of engineer school is you go through combatives training, which is the army teaching you how to defend yourself and fight with your hands. It's combatives. And so I am not, I did, when I grew up, I was not a wrestler. I was a soccer player. Not a whole lot of wrestling going on in soccer. I was the younger brother, so I learned quickly not to wrestle. Amen. Amen. Number one, because I am a much smaller younger brother, so I learned quickly not to wrestle. I'm not like, my idea of fun is like, let's not go in the parking lot and just wrestle. (laughs) It's not my thing, right? But you have to go through combatives training as part of your coursework. So for combatives training, you and all the other lieutenants, you get in uh, a gym and they lay down the mats and you practice, you know, the instructor goes through all these moves and and you practice and now... I'm not a wrestler, right? So I go there and I'm just kind of like, just, you ever been through a course where you're like, I'm going to do the bare minimum to get me through this? Because let's be real, people, if overseas, if I'm wrestling with somebody for my life, like I'm done. Like, I don't know how I got there, I'm done. But in this course, you got to learn. So I'm going through it and it's not that bad in the beginning. Like it's kind of just chill, like you're wearing socks and your uniform, it kind of feels like pajamas and you're just having fun on the mat, you know, sparring with some people, no big deal. And so then it's time for the next block of instruction. And I'm feeling a little better about class at this point. So we're all huddled around, all the lieutenants and the instructor. And he says, all right, for this next piece, I'm going to need a volunteer. Me, being an idiot, thought, it's fun so far. Like, yeah, I'll volunteer, sure. So he's like, all right, Holman, come out here, come out here. So I get in the middle of the mat, and he's like, I want you just to sit down. So I sit down, and crisscross applesauce, I'm just chilling. I'm like, man, this is so much fun. Like, what are we going to do? And then he says, hey, I just want you to, like, go limp for a second. What? You just want me to okay, just like, sit here and go limp. Okay, so then he goes, and then he wraps his arm around from behind me in his neck. He goes, all right, guys, now we're going to learn what it feels like to be choked out. <laughs> what? Sorry, we're going to walk through how to choke someone out, but you're going to take turns choking each other out so you can feel what it's like. What? What kind of philosophy is that? I don't want to learn what it feels like to get shot. All right, so Holloman, you just stand there. So he wraps his arms around me. I don't know how many hours bro spent in the gym, but it was like a barbell was just on my neck. And then he starts to slowly apply the pressure. For my three people, stories to be told, you know that when you get choked out, it's a slow process because it's all the blood stops going to your head. Your head likes to have blood. And when it doesn't get blood, you go sleepy sleep. And so he just starts to squeeze my neck, and I see why he told me to go limp, because it just kind of melted into his arms. And then he lets go, and the blood rushes back to your head, and you're back. I haven't been choked out since. And yet, why do you applaud that? As if that's an accomplishment. And so when I think about, when I read this parable in the Gospels, I think about that. That feeling of what it means to be choked out, of just feeling helpless and feeling it slowly begin just to die out. And then when we look at this example in the Gospels, it's not you choking this person to get what you're owed. It's you slowly choking out the Gospels work in you. 
And so my prayer for us as a church is that we would just, we would walk away from that. That you would accept the reality that, man, as a person who's received God's grace, that you'd be grace-filled and surrender your right. It's a debt, I get it, but you surrender it because you've been overwhelmed by the grace of God in your life. Let's look at verse 33 as we close out. Verse 33, this is the main point. Everything Jesus is teaching works to this point in the parable. And he says this. This is when the king has the unforgiving servant before him. And this is the expectation of the Lord upon his people. He says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And church, I think that that's the question that Jesus is leaving before us in his word this morning. Maybe you have given yourself permission to stop forgiving. Maybe you are holding on to give me what I'm owed. And I think the gospel would just call us to give that up. To give it up and be grace-filled that we might be able to extend grace and forgive others and release them of debts that are owed to us. Why? Because, and simply because, you and I have experienced the reality of the grace of Jesus. And my prayer is that we'd be overwhelmed by that. And being grace-filled is not token. It's not little stuff. It's real. It's not like when people cut you off on the way to lunch and you're like, oh, it's okay, pastor told me. Grace-filled. So I'm not going to yell at this guy in my car. But then all of a sudden when the real debts come your way, you notice it's not chump change still. It's $10,000. Anybody owe you ten grand? Anybody feeling the burden of like the Lord's telling me just to let that go? No? We're not there yet? It's not chump change. It's real debt. It's real stuff. It's not, not little platitudes. It's not simple stuff. Jesus is calling us in weighty matters to be grace-filled, not just in the token stuff. Token discipleship is easy. Yeah, he cut me off. Oh, it's okay, Jesus. The big stuff, too, that you'd be a person who lets that stuff go. And then lastly, I'm going to close with, you don't need to turn there, Ephesians 2.7, the end of the passage we read a little while ago. Listen to what Paul says. Why has Jesus done this? in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness. Look what he does there. The, the incomparable measure of his grace, but grace is not theoretical. It's not this lofty like ideal in the sky. It's his grace, the, the incomparable Riches of his grace expressed in his kindness. Grace expressed in his kindness to you and me. And that's where I would leave us, church, is this, that we would be people who are grace-filled and like our teacher, like our Lord, like our God, that we would be people who are grace-filled and it expresses itself in the kindness that we would be able to let go of debts and be people who live out grace through kindness. We're going to go in a second into a time of open worship. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go into this time. The band will be up and they're going to play in the background. 
My encouragement to you in this time is to sit with the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I hear from your word. Man, Lord, I'm hanging on to grudges. I'm hanging on to pain. I'm hanging on to unforgiveness. And Lord, I want to be touched by your grace. I want to be overwhelmed by your grace so I can let these debts go and be a person who dispenses grace through kindness. And my prayer is that we as a community would be that people, not just for each other, but for those outside these walls, and that that would be an articulation of the gospel, that that would be a proclamation of the gospel through you being a grace-filled follower of Jesus. Would you pray with me?